Good morning, church family, and welcome to Risen King Church at home. I am so grateful to be able to worship alongside you this morning, and we actually get to continue on in our teaching series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Before we get to our time of teaching, I'd like to share what an incredible joy it has been to receive letters, emails, texts coming in from our community, thanking us for faithfully serving them in the midst of this crisis. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Army of Volunteers who are giving of their time and hearts to see that our community is loved well through boxes of hope. Your faithful giving has seen dozens of families in our community receive critical food and hygiene items during this crisis. So let's continue to serve well. Let's continue to get involved. Continue to take that long way home from the grocery store to provide essential items and be part of the solution at risenkingchurch.com forward slash boxes of hope. Your generosity in this season continues to inspire me and continues to provide hope in this critical moment in history. I want to encourage you to continue and press ahead by giving at this time at risenkingchurch.com forward slash give or mail in your giving at 26 Manning Avenue, Butler, New Jersey, 07405. Let's get ready to dive deep into God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Here's what it says, and the title of this morning's message is Incredible Generosity. Incredible Generosity. It says this, it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace that was a receiving of an offering that was happening and I'll explain that a little bit on later on but as you excel in everything in faith in speech in knowledge in all earnestness and in our love for you see that you excel in this act of grace also we tend to think of wealth as a good thing we take comfort when we have it and we despair when we lose it From the Bible's perspective, however, it is as much a danger as it is a blessing because it has the potential to destroy your soul. Maybe that's why Jesus talked about money so much in the Gospels. Think about it. When Jesus met the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler was ready and willing to follow Jesus in nearly every way except for one. He loved his money more. And when forced to choose, he clung to his wealth, and that destroyed his soul. 
And you may say, well, Pastor Tom, don't, don't worry about me. I'm not rich. I'm not Wall Street. I am total Main Street. I'm just trying to make ends meet and have a little bit left over for a rainy day. Consider this. In 2018, the Washington Post reported, after adjusting for cost of living differences, a typical American still earns an income that is 10 times the income received by the typical person in the world. I'm not trying to make anyone listening to me feel guilty for being rich, but I'm saying to make sure that we recognize when God speaks in his word to people who are rich, he's talking to us. Scripture says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what's the alternative to this? Well, it's loving God with your money, serving God with your money, following Jesus in what you do with your money. It means using it to love God and to love your neighbor. If you've grown up in church, it's easy for giving to become another mindless exercise. For others of you, it's not mindless. It's, it's downright uncomfortable. Maybe you've been in a church environment where it seemed like all they wanted to do was to get their hands on your finances. Maybe you felt manipulated into giving or thought, if I give X amount, then God is going to bless me. Well, I'm grateful that Jesus has not left us without guidance in what it looks like to worship him with our finances. Few passages of scripture are more helpful than 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 in establishing what is a biblical vision for using our finances to love God and love our neighbor. So here's the context of what we just finished reading. In Acts chapter 11, a prophet from Jerusalem named Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine in the world, which is exactly what happened in Judea and Jerusalem during the reign of the emperor Claudius in A.D. 41 to 54. Toward the end of that time, the apostle Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians to the church that he began in the city of Corinth. And in that letter, he gives them explicit instruction. And he says this to them. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you all also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. That is the collection or the offering that the Apostle Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It was a specific offering for a specific group of people at a specific point in time. However, the authoritative words that Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write continue to serve us today by establishing principles for giving in general. And they let us know, hey, what does it mean to worship God with the resources that God has entrusted us with? So Paul opens up in verse 1 by directing the Corinthians to the example of the churches in Macedonia. Churches in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. It's not manipulation. He's not trying to play some sort of comparison game to try to reach a certain goal. He's reminding the Corinthians and us of a foundational principle. God gives first. 
It was his grace, his unmerited favor at work in their lives that enabled the Macedonians to excel in the grace of giving. His giving initiated. His giving compelled. His giving sustained their own ability to financially contribute. See, before we ever give to God, God has already given to us and given to us in abundance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, the Macedonians stood out as an example of generosity, but it wasn't because God gave to them in a way that he hasn't given to us. The point of verse 1 isn't, hey, Corinthians, join me in standing in awe of the Macedonian. No, it's more like, hey, Corinthians, hey, Risen King Church, remember and don't forget that the grace of giving doesn't start with you. It starts with God. He's a God who gives. And we're only able to give because he first gave to us. We're only passing along something that we have already received. Church family, if you're a recipient of the grace of God, then you have the gift of giving because it's God who gave us power to give to him and others because he's first given to us. All that we are, all that we have comes from him. We're debtors to God for the gift of life, for the gift of Christ, for all the blessings of the gospel, for the ability to respond to all that God has given us. And he asks us to use our finances to love him and to love our neighbors well. He had ultimately all comes from him. So if giving is an area where you struggle to obey the Lord or even want to obey the Lord, I want you to take heart. He is able to give you the grace you need to worship him with your giving. Why? Because he's the ultimate giver. So how did the grace of God give the Macedonians? How did that play out practically? Well, let's check out verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I have a question for you. In your life, what do severe tests of affliction tend to produce? Maybe isolation, perhaps a little grumbling, a little complaining. Maybe there's a little self-pity. I, I think that's where many of us tend to turn. But what if I told you that on top of the difficult season that you're walking through emotionally, I throw in poverty. And I, I'm not talking about how, how will I even pay my cell phone bill this month. I'm talking about looking at your family in the morning and saying, guys, I don't know that we'll even have food to be able to eat. An estimated 413 million people in sub-Saharan Africa are trying to survive on less than a dollar and 90 cents a day. That's the kind of poverty that the Apostle Paul is talking about. 
So he's saying a severe affliction, check. Extreme poverty, check. But the Macedonians also had something else. Abundance of joy. Well, where in the world could something like that have come from? The Macedonians had next to no material possessions. But you know what they had? They had Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good and having him and loving him. And even if you lose everything else, the Apostle Paul understood it's still gain. Paul was willing to suffer any loss all so that he could gain Christ. Not just because it was right or the thing that you were supposed to say, but because it was true. Knowing Jesus doesn't take away the pain of poverty. Severe affliction still hurts. And and I, for one, am exceedingly grateful that Paul didn't talk about their abundance of joy as if they lived in some sort of sanitized vacuum. It was real joy that he was talking about in the midst of real suffering from knowing a real Savior. And what did it produce? Verse 2 tells us, a wealth of generosity. Well, how does that work? It's supernatural, but it's so simple. When you have next to no money, yet you still have abundant joy, what do you begin to realize at a deep level? That money really wasn't the source of your joy at all. Jesus is. We come to realize that he's our provider. We come to realize that he's our deliverer. We come to realize that he's our security, that he's our refuge. He's the stability of our times. Jesus is our treasure, not a bank account that is full or a balanced budget or a well-stocked pantry, not an emergency fund or a life insurance or an IRA. Now, does that mean that those things are bad? No. Those things can be a tremendous blessing. It's tempting to make them our functional God and spend our entire life looking to financial security in this world for happiness that really only Jesus could ever give us. It's easy to think that Jesus is our joy, but immediately become anxious or panic when our financial situation is threatened, revealing we were really loving our money more than we loved our God the entire time. Can ultimate wealth deliver on the abiding joy and contentment that you think it offers? The truth is, no, it can't. Can it grant you unshakable gladness that no sorrow or suffering or stock market crash can ever defeat or take away? The answer is no, it can't. That's when we discover Jesus and him alone. He is the only one that could ever fulfill those deepest parts of our life. Why? Because you were not created to love money. You were created to love the Lord and only he can satisfy your soul. Discovering joy in Jesus sets us free in two respects. It frees us from worshiping money, and it frees us to worship the Lord with our money. Notice their abundant joy and extreme poverty didn't overflow into some sort of quiet contentment. Man, it sure would be nice to have something to give, but at least I have Jesus. No, no, no. The abundance of joy and extreme poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity 
They couldn't help but take what little they had and devote it to loving the Lord and to those he died to save. Our neighbors, our community, our town, our region, our state. Let me tell you, I can remember when I bought Crystal her engagement ring, giving her her ring, purchasing it for her wasn't a burden. It was a joy. Why? Because I love her. She brings me great joy. No sacrifice is too great to bless, nurture, and protect the things we love the most. We love to spend money on and give money to the things that bring us joy. The same principle holds true in our relationship with the Lord. When Jesus is your surpassing joy, it's not hard to overflow in a wealth of generosity toward him and those he died to save. In fact, it's a delight. Biblical generosity isn't the fruit of wealth. It's the fruit of surpassing joy in Jesus. A joy that delivers us from clutching to our finances and frees us to love him and his people with everything that he's entrusted us with. What do we tend to think? We tend to think generosity is for wealthy people. I mean, I'm trying to be a nice guy, but man... I don't have anything to give. I can hardly keep up with all my bills. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means. Remember what I just said. Giving isn't the fruit of wealth. It isn't the fruit of financial excess. It's the fruit of abundant joy in Jesus. This is the story in Luke chapter 21 of this poor widow who showed abundant joy in Jesus. So what did she do? She takes two copper coins To which Jesus comes out and says, move over, lady. There's a really rich guy behind you with two great big bags of gold. Stealth right this way, sir. I'd like to offer you a special place in my kingdom, starting with an engraved stone in the new heavens and the new earth. No. He saw what she gave. And her giving melted his heart. Why? Because from a proportional standpoint, she gave more than all the rich people. There are two kinds of gifts that consistently bring me to tears. The first are gifts that I receive from people that I know are suffering through immense hardships. Some of the greatest gifts I remember receiving as a kid were from my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother lived on a fixed income and lived in the housing projects in New York City. But somehow, some way, she always managed to send her home attendant out with a little bit of finances to be able to get us a gift every Christmas. It was beautiful. The second are gifts from my children. When one of my girls takes half the money that they have and they buy me a chocolate bar, I don't come out and say, come on, baby. Why couldn't you give me that surround sound system? That I wanted for my house. Not at all. When she gives what she has, it melts my heart. Their giving fills me with joy, not because of how it measures up to what anybody else can get me, but because of the proportion that it represents of all that she has. Our Heavenly Father is no different. Give according to your means. And as the Lord puts it on your heart, give beyond your means. Not foolishly, not blindly, proportionally. We're responsible 
for being faithful with what we have been given. And when you give, take care that it's not a transaction, a financial transaction that you're making with God. All right, all right, God. You want 10% fine. Here it is. Now you better help me do this and pay this and get this. That giving doesn't please God. The giving that pleases God is when we give of our own free will. Scripture says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Macedonians didn't have to be sweet-talked. In fact, verse 4 says they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the reliefs of the saints. Wait, give me a second. What? They're begging for the privilege of giving towards this cause. Why would anybody ever do that? Because giving to meet the spiritual and physical needs of the men and women around us is a tremendous privilege. Think about it. When we give to relieve the needs of the poor in our church and the surrounding community by giving towards boxes of hope, what happens? Christians and non-Christians alike taste and see that the Lord is good. They realize that he sees them, that he's aware of their situation, that he knows what they need, and he's using his body, the church, to take care of their needs because he's a faithful God. When we give to support the work of God overseas through Assemblies of God, World Missions, what happens? We get reports of new churches being planted in secular Europe, of wells being dug to supply waters for towns and villages in Africa. We get reports of pastors being trained in Ecuador, of teenagers being trained and being reached for Jesus in Panama, and of hungry people being fed all across America and the world through Convoy of Hope. So I can go on and on, but what's the point? When joy in Jesus and bringing him glory captures our hearts, taking all of our money and using it to love God and love our neighbor isn't a burden. It isn't a duty. It now becomes a privilege. The giving that pleases God is proportional and voluntary. It's not something we have to do. It becomes something that we want to do. Understanding the purpose of money starts with discovering what it means to worship God with our money. He points us in the right direction in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We need to remember that God ultimately, he's the ultimate giver. Unless he gives to us, we have neither the substance nor the will to give to others. He has generously lavished grace on us through Jesus, giving us all the spiritual and material resources we need to practice generosity with others. A wealth of generosity is only possible if Jesus and not money is your surpassing joy. Unless you love him first and best, you'll never be able to honor God with your money because you'll be too busy using it to worship something else. But if Jesus is your joy, if Jesus is your delight, then whether you're swimming in riches, suffering in extreme poverty, or somewhere in between, you will overflow in a wealth of generosity. 
See, it's not about how much you can give compared to other people. It's about how much you've given compared to what the Lord has entrusted to you. The giving that pleases the Lord is proportional and voluntary. He wants all of you, friend. Your whole heart. Your whole mind. He's not satisfied with a 10% handout. He's our king. He's our Lord. All that we are and all that we have is his. As we end in prayer, I want you to wrestle with a very simple question. Is my life characterized by a wealth of financial generosity toward God and others, even if I'm relatively poor? Or is some other treasure besides Jesus sitting on the throne of my heart and stealing the resources that would otherwise be devoted to worshiping God. That's where we have to start, friends. We have to start with an honest assessment of our hearts. So let's take the time right now to pray. And we're going to ask God's help so that we can do this well and live generously as a church. Because we proclaim it. We proclaim on earth as it is in heaven. Well, heaven is a generous place, and so we want to be a generous place here on this earth as we provide for the needs of others globally and in our community. So let's begin in prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, thank you for the opportunity, God, that you give us to be able, Lord Jesus, to contribute. Thank you that you give us the opportunity, God, to be generous in our finances. But God, we want to approach this with a right mind. We want to approach this with a right heart, Lord Jesus. We want to give proportionally. We want to give voluntarily. We want to give with an understanding that we can only give because your grace has covered us and because you are the ultimate giver. And because we follow your instructions and we follow your lead and we follow your character, Lord Jesus, we learn from the ultimate giver, Lord, to be generous givers here on this earth. Father, for those of us who have a, a difficulty doing this, Lord Jesus, Father, let's understand what your scripture is teaching us today. That you're calling us to steward well, to manage well the resources that you have given to us, that you have entrusted to us. Help us to be generous with those resources, Lord Jesus. Father, help us ultimately to seek and follow you, Lord Jesus, to develop your character and grow in godliness daily. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. It's been so good to be able to teach God's word to you today. If this is your first time here, let us know by going to risenkingchurch.com forward slash connect. If you need further prayer, I want to invite you to go to risenkingchurch.com forward slash prayer. I love you, Risen King Church, so very much. We're getting closer and closer to the day where we're going to be able to celebrate God's goodness right here in our church facility. God bless you. I love you. I cherish you. Until next time.